I don't know if you can remember when you first learned about sex, uh, when you first heard about the birds and the bees. I can remember when I was eight or nine years old, my dad took me fishing. He woke me up early one morning and we went fishing so that he could talk to me about the facts of life. I remember it vividly because I think it was the only time in my childhood that I went fishing with my dad. It's not that, I mean, we spent time together, but my dad wasn't a great outdoorsman or anything like that. So we didn't go fishing very much at all. So I remember kind of thinking, why are we doing this? Are we short on food? Is the grocery store running out of food or something along those lines? But it was his opportunity to take me somewhere quiet where I would be attentive. And we sat by a lake shore in Dallas while he told me about sex and the scriptures and what it says and God's design and his hopes for my life in this area. Maybe you can remember a similar conversation like that with your own parents. But some of you probably can't because you didn't actually have that conversation. I'm aware of more than one person that their introduction to the birds and the bees was they came into their room one day and there was just a book on the bed. At some point, their parents had crept in during the day when they weren't there, dropped the book, crept away, and that was how they introduced it to their kids. Some of you didn't even get that. Some of you learned about sex from your friends and their distorted understanding. Some of you, even worse, learned from TV or movies or the internet. If the statistics are correct, by the age of 12, the majority of American kids have encountered sexually graphic content on the internet. They've encountered pornography, as many as 70% by the time they're 12 or 13. So before they've had an opportunity to hear from their parents in many cases. The statistics tell us that about 60% of kids do have some kind of conversation, either a lot of conversations or at least some conversation with their parents about sexuality. But 54% also learn a lot from their friends or from the media. I realize those add up to more than 100%. It's because there's some overlap. People hear about these topics from a variety of sources. And I understand why parents struggle to talk about this topic. It's difficult. It's awkward. We feel like it's private. And I think for a lot of people, there's shame. Maybe most people, there's shame surrounding this topic. If you yourself have failed in this area in some way, or if you feel that your marriage is not what you wanted it to be in this area, it can be really hard to have these conversations. It's not only that it's hard between parents and children. Sometimes it's even hard between spouses. Sometimes it's even hard in the church to talk about these topics because it's controversial and it's difficult. But we can't shy away from talking about it because the scripture talks about it a lot. The Bible talks about sex and God's design for sex a whole lot. I mean, frequently, all the way throughout the pages of scripture. And in fact, the conversation surrounding sex in the scripture goes all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation design for male and female and marriage and the family and relational and emotional and spiritual and yes, sexual intimacy are all tied up in God's creative design. It's all woven into the fabric of who God made us to be. Because, because as we read the scripture, what we see is that sexuality is designed to fit in a context where it can honor and glorify God, where it can display 
God's character, his love, and his faithfulness, and even his creative activity as husband and wife procreate. They create in a small way just as God does in a big way. And so all the way from the beginning, we see that God lays out his plan for sexuality and for marriage. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, let me show you in Genesis chapter 2, this famous passage right at the, at the crowning moment of God's creation of the world. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, that is out of his side, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. So if you're familiar with the context of Genesis chapter 2 here, you know that just before this moment, God had created all of the animals, and he had brought all of the animals to Adam. And humanity is God's crowning act of creation. And so God brings all the animals to Adam and says, I want you to name them. So Adam names all the animals. I don't know what his words were for them, but, you know, he has a giraffe, maybe, an, and a dog, and, you know, a rhinoceros. They all come, and, and, and he names them, and it says, but there was no helper found suitable for Adam. There was nobody found suitable for Adam. So God puts him to sleep, makes this woman out of his side. Adam wakes up. He sees her, and he says, this one, finally, at last, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she's taken out of man. What is he saying? He's saying she's like me, but she's different. She fits with me. She is the perfect helper that God has made for me. He designed her to go with me to be human like I am human, but not exactly like me. So we fit together. We complement one another. And then Genesis goes on and says, for that reason. What reason? Because God created male and female together. For that reason, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and unites with his wife. Marriage is rooted in God's creative act of male and female, and they become a new family. Now, in most versions uh, of the Bible, most English versions, this says literally, they become one flesh. That's the literal translation from the Hebrew of this text. But I like the way the Net Bible says it here, and here's why, because it helps us understand what this passage is getting at, that the male and the female, they each leave now their families of origin, and they unite together not only in sexual intimacy, but in relational and emotional intimacy and in this commitment where they will now build a new family together coming from their previous families. That new family at its center will have this marriage relationship that is designed to reflect God's love and God's faithfulness until the end of that couple's life, right? That's the design. Perfect intimacy initially in the Garden of Eden. Sexual, relational, emotional in every way. They're designed to reflect God's character. That's why Jesus actually quoted this passage in Matthew 19 to talk about why marriage is designed to last forever. That's God's original design, that, that marriage is designed to last for the lifetime of the couple because God created them to join together to build a new family that is not meant to break apart. Now, we know in a fallen world that often does happen, but God's original design is the couple united together 
And then it goes on and says, the man and the wife, they're both naked, but they're not ashamed. Shame and guilt and sin has not yet entered in this relationship. Many years ago, I was teaching from this passage, and I read that last phrase. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. And I remember there was a kid, a little boy, who was probably seven or eight, and just from the middle of the room somewhere, I just heard him shout, gross, right, like that, right as I got to this part. And so I paused and I said, no, you, you don't get it. It's not gross. I understand why from your perspective it feels that way. But it's actually designed to reflect the faithful, covenant-honoring, loving, kind nature of God who made us. And so sexual intimacy is designed to fit within a particular context of marriage between the male and the female. Now, we know that that's not always how it goes in our culture, that it doesn't take very long after the creation of humanity before mankind, because of our sin, takes this beautiful thing God has made and we twist it, we distort it, we pervert it. Uh, We recognize right now, in 2023, we live in a very sexually depraved, sexually immoral culture. We're bombarded with sexually immoral messages day in, day out, online, offline, everywhere we look, we are bombarded with sexually immoral messages. What we forget is that's actually nothing new. This distortion of God's design for sex goes all the way back uh, to Genesis 3, 4, 5, almost immediately after mankind chooses to disobey God, every area of life is distorted and twisted and perverted by sin, including this area. So by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we don't even make it out of book one of 66, we have adultery and rape and incest and what we would call sexual harassment and all kinds of sexual immorality pops up throughout the book of Genesis before we even get to the end of the first book. Mankind takes what God has made and distorts it. And that pattern continues to this day. So that as we move throughout the scripture, there are repeated warnings about taking this good thing God has made and utilizing it or taking it outside of the boundaries of the marriage relationship that God designed for the man and the woman. That's why this conversation about sexuality is not a one-and-done conversation. But it has to be an ongoing conversation in the church, in our homes, in our marriages because it's an ongoing conversation that matters to God. God wants what's best for us. God designed us for joy, for holiness, to reflect the character of Jesus. So we're going to look at one passage this morning, Proverbs chapter 7, in which Solomon, King Solomon, warns one of his sons about the consequences of sexual sin. The consequences of stepping out sex, or in this case in Proverbs 7, adultery in our area, lust and pornography, all of these areas are stepping outside of God's boundaries. And Solomon's going to say to his son, hey son, I want you to understand, when you do that, you're not moving toward hope and life and peace and joy, you're actually moving toward death and destruction, distance from God, relational, emotional, spiritual, physical, even financial consequences will follow in your life. And so my hope as we look at this passage is for for us to get a handle on this sticky question of how do we fight sexual temptation? 
And as I ask that question, I don't have to be a prophet to know for a fact that there are men and women in this room today for whom this is an ongoing struggle with sin in a variety of different ways. Some are sitting in this room and you are, you're, you're just covered in shame, even as we broach this topic. And so one caveat I want to give about this passage before we dive into it is that Solomon's goal, even with his son, as he talks about this, is not to increase his shame and his guilt, but instead to offer him a pathway to flee sexual immorality. You and I know, as believers in Jesus Christ, that every sin, past, present, future, no matter how small or large, has been nailed to the cross of Christ. That Jesus Christ died and rose again. He took on himself the penalty of our sin. And all who believe in him can have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a close relationship with God again. But we also know that sexual immorality has consequences in our daily relationship with God, our relationships with our spouses or future spouses or kiddos or our community or our church or ourselves. And so Solomon warns, the large portion of the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are actually devoted to this topic of sexual morality. Toward the end of chapter six, Solomon says this, can a man hold fire against his chest without burning his clothes? Can a man walk on hot coals without scorching his feet? Now, those are rhetorical questions and the answer is no. Even if you did this at some corporate retreat where you walked on hot coals with bare feet, you're not supposed to do that. That's not normal. And the idea is if you take something that is so powerful, like fire, and you hold it really close to yourself, you're going to burn yourself up. Very similarly, in this area of sexual intimacy, you take something God designed that has a lot of pull, a lot of power, and you bring it close to yourself in a way you were not meant to. You can burn yourself and your life and those around you. And so this is a warning, not a guilt trip. I also want to say this, Solomon will portray sexual immorality in this passage as a woman. He's going to describe an adulterous woman, and we'll walk through the passage. Solomon is not saying that women are the problem when it comes to sexual immorality. As you read the scripture, both men and women are placed on the hook in this area of life. Both are made responsible in this area of sexual morality and purity. However, what we're going to see, he personifies the adulterous woman. He personifies immorality as an adulterous woman. There's also another woman, the woman of wisdom. And and so he personifies both of them as women to say, there's one woman, the woman of wisdom, you want to chase after. You want to draw her near. You want wisdom close to your heart, as close as you can get her. The adulterous woman, sexual immorality, you want her as far away as you can get her. Remember, it's a father talking to a son. And so that's why he describes it this way. Here's the question we're then going to look at from Proverbs 7 this morning. How can we fight sexual temptation in a way that honors the Lord? Solomon's going to lay out for us what it looks like to fall. But in the process, he's going to show us what we need to be on guard against in this area of our sexuality to say, I want to honor God with my body, with my mind my eyes, with all I have in this area. How do we fight sexual temptation? Follow with me. I'm going to start in Proverbs 7, beginning in verse 1. My son, keep my words. 
and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, excuse me, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Notice all those descriptions. It's dark. It's late at night. Solomon begins by saying, son, I want you to understand there's two pathways you can chase. You may remember as we've walked through the book of Proverbs, there's the wise person and the fool per- foolish person, and in the middle here is the naive person like his son who hasn't really yet decided what way to go in life. And so Solomon is telling him the fear of the Lord, pursuing the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. So here's what I want you to do, son. Listen to my wisdom. Take wisdom close so you can reject the lies of sexual immorality. And so then he goes on and he says, here's the first thing you need to do. If you want to reject sexual sin, if you want to run away from sexual temptation, you have to guard your steps. You have to guard your steps. Notice he then says, look, I looked out of my window and I saw a young man, a naive young man, and literally it says he's lacking heart. He's lacking moral sense. Here's this young man who doesn't have a real strong moral compass. And what is he doing? Well, he's just wandering around in the city after dark, late at night, and he happens to round this corner. And we'll see, lo and behold, a trap has been set for this young man by this woman, remember, who represents sexual immorality. Now, if you were, if you were watching this, and this is like a scary movie, This is foreshadowing. If you've ever watched a scary movie, you know, there's always that moment where some character at the beginning says, hey, why don't we, it's a nice night, why don't we go out into the woods behind our lonely cabin at night and take a stroll? And if you're watching, you're like, don't do that. Never go in the woods. The only thing in the woods behind your cabin are monsters and psychopaths. You know that. So don't do it. You're going to die. That is the moment that Solomon describes. That's how you should be feeling as you read. Here's this guy just dun 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 He lacks sense. He lacks heart. He's naive. These are all Hebrew words for he's a doofus. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't have discipline. Solomon is saying to his son, don't be like this guy. Do the habits and patterns of your life lead you to holiness or to immorality? What do you do with that downtime, that unstructured time, when you're not at work, you're not at school, you're not in an activity, there's nothing going on? How do you discipline that downtime? There are ways to discipline that downtime and steward it well, and there are ways that could lead you into immorality. So when you have downtime, do you mindlessly scroll through the internet, across social media, which maybe stirs up your envy, which leads to anger and discontent, which leads to lust, which leads to perhaps pornography? Do you mindlessly scroll through Netflix trying to find something to watch that might be entertaining, 
but not edifying? Do you mindlessly open up whatever dating or maybe even hookup app you have on your phone? Right? And again, not all of these things are always bad, but when we do not have a plan for our time to pursue holiness and godliness, we almost always will find ourselves in an unstructured moment, alone in a place of temptation. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with young men who have found themselves uh, engaging in premarital sex or even older men who found themselves engaging in extramarital sex. And often when you ask the question, how did you get here? How did this happen? They go, I don't know what happened. I went over to her apartment to study and it was midnight and nobody else was there. And we got bored and we got tired. And so we said, let's just lie down and take a nap together on her twin bed with nobody else around. And I don't know what happened, but we ended up with a problem. Now, you know what happened, right? And, and here's what I would say. With this, with this young man described in Proverbs 7, it's not that he's looking for an adulterous affair, but he's not not looking for one either. He has not created habits and patterns of holiness and discipline in his life. He's just foolish, naive, and unsuspecting. So Solomon says, how do you guard your time? How do you guard what you look at, what you read, what you watch, what you hear, where you go? Guard your steps. Where do the patterns of your life lead you? Toward knowing God's word? Toward knowing Jesus more deeply? or toward immorality. There may be some patterns that have to change in your life. To turn off the internet after a certain time. To say we're not going to go to certain places at certain times. Because I know that leads me to temptation. He's going to go on and he's going to say, I also want you to reject the lies of sin. Look at verses 10 now through 21. So here he is wandering around in the middle of the night, verse 10, and behold, A woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. So I want you to notice this woman approaches him. And first of all, Solomon says she's dressed like a prostitute. Now this is important not because of what she looks like, Uh, He doesn't describe her physical appearance in any way other than to say how she's dressed. The idea of her being dressed that way is not so much that she uses her physical beauty to draw her in, but to draw him in, but instead she is signaling, 
I'm available. I am desirous of an affair. And she approaches him and she grabs him and she kisses him. And then she proceeds to seduce him, not primarily with her body, but with her words, with her lies, with what she says. And remember, Solomon is personifying sexual immorality as a woman to say, here are the lies she tells. Here are the things she wants you to believe. Because sin always shows up first as a lie we believe about the character of God or about ourselves or about other people. As Jesus says in John 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That is his strategy to draw us in. So she begins to convince him that what is terrible for him will actually be great for him. What will lead him to death, she says, will lead him to life because she understands what you and I often forget, that we are really good at rationalizing bad things by convincing ourselves that they're good things. Let me just give you one illustration from another area of life. If you're uh, old enough, uh, you might remember eating this for breakfast, cookie crisp. Now, I want you to notice, I don't know how well you can see that from here, but uh, this, and this wasn't there when I was a kid. At the top of the box, uh, there are three little statements uh, about how this, this could actually be good for you. It says there's no high fructose corn syrup. Now, uh, that just means there's a particular type of sugar they haven't put in here. All they've done is just piles of actual sugar, right? So there's no high fructose corn syrup, no colors from artificial sources. That's because it's just a cookie. They haven't actually had to artificially color it. No artificial flavors. Again, it's just a cookie, right? And the idea is this. This could really be good for you. Uh, Sometimes they will say uh, this could be part of this balanced, nutritious breakfast. Well, it is the part that is not balanced or nutritious. Let's be honest. This is a bowl of cookies for breakfast. That's what it is. If you eat this every day for breakfast, this will not lead your body and your life in a positive direction over time. You know that. I know that. But they want to convince us otherwise. And I'm going to be honest with you. There is a large part of me that would love to believe otherwise because I love chocolate chip cookies. If I could eat them for breakfast every single morning without consequence or penalty, I would do it. We're really good at convincing ourselves that something that will harm us will actually benefit us. And so Solomon says, son, I want you to reject sin's lies. Here are the lies this woman tells this young man. First one is simply this. God is good with this. What we're about to do, God approves of. Here's how she approaches that subject. She says, hey, I have offered a peace offering today. I fulfilled my vows, and so I've been looking for somebody to share this with. Now, what is she getting at? If you go back to Leviticus chapters 3 and 7, you will find that there's a description of all the different offerings you could make in the temple. One of them was called a peace offering. A peace offering is a voluntary offering. It's it's a free will offering. You don't have to make a peace offering. But if you felt thankful to God just for the blessings he had lavished on your life, you could bring a lamb or a goat to the temple. And you would sacrifice that animal. You would slaughter that animal. And then a portion of that animal would be burned on the altar by the priest, offered up to God. 
The remainder of the animal, all of the meat, you could take home and you would eat it. You would share it with your family as you gave thanks to God for all of his goodness. But you only had 24 hours to eat it before it was prohibited. So here's what she's saying. I've made an offering. I have to eat it. I want to share it with somebody. God wouldn't want us to waste the meat, would he? God wouldn't want us to disobey his commandment about the offering. And she says all of this even as she's tempting him to disobey God's commandment about adultery. She's lying to him to say, I'm religious, you're religious, this will make us happy, God is good with it. That's one of the main lies of sexual immorality. God wants me to enjoy my life, to be happy, to be thankful. God is good with this. Often in the context of adultery, people will say, I'm not happy within my marriage. So God would want me to engage in this relationship outside because that makes me happy. Or maybe you're single and you say, I'm unhappy being single and I'm frustrated being single. And so God would be okay with pornography in my life because he wants me to be happy and not frustrated. Right? And so we convince ourselves that God approves of what God does not approve of and that what is going to harm us will be good. She says, God is good with this. And then she goes on and she's gonna, she's gonna say, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly and have found you. What she's saying, the second lie is simply this, this will make you special. This relationship is special. This will offer something you can't get anywhere else. I've come out to look specifically for you, you big, handsome stud. Now, you know that transparently that's a lie. She's not looking for him specifically. He just happened to round the corner in front of her house. She's looking for anybody available and dumb enough to get involved with her. That's it. But notice how she plays on his ego. This will make you special, right? Quite often, that is a lie of sexual immorality. This will make you special. There will be a connection in this that maybe you can't find in the marriage relationship, in the boundaries that God has set in place. This makes you important, significant, alive, special. It facilitates a connection you won't find anywhere else. And it's a lie. And then she goes on. And she says, I want to describe to you the lavish night of pleasure that we will have. And and as I read her description of the night that she wants him to anticipate, maybe you felt uncomfortable with that. But what she describes is sort of an assault on all of his senses. It will smell good. It will feel good. It will look good. Everything will be the greatest pleasure you've ever experienced. And the lie here is that the pleasure is all that matters. That you can have this pleasure, guilt-free, consequence-free, free from commitment, free from a relational or spiritual or emotional connection, free from the boundaries of marriage. The pleasure is all that matters. I think this is the great lie, by the way, of pornography in our age. That it decouples sexual intimacy or sexual pleasure from marriage from closeness, from commitment, from faithfulness, from intimacy, from everything God wants and says the pleasure is all that matters. And it's a lie. And then the last lie she throws at him is nobody's going to know. We can keep this a secret. 
nobody will find out. She says, my husband is gone. He won't be back until the full moon. So who knows exactly how long, but at least several days, if not a couple of weeks. It's a long time. He won't be back till the full moon. And she goes, he took a big bag of money with him. That means that he's transacting business somewhere else. He's going to be gone for a while. Nobody's going to know. We can get away with this scot-free. Now, of course, the irony is that people know, right? Who wrote this story? Somebody who saw it happening through his window, right? The ancient world, the the streets were narrow. The homes were close together. Uh, You couldn't get away with a whole lot with regard to your neighbors. But even if you could, God knows what's happening. God sees. But she wants him to believe you can keep this hidden. Again, I I, I cannot say how many times I've had conversations with people who thought they could keep sexual sin hidden. But it, it often, I'd say usually, finds a way of working its way into the light. But the lie is nobody has to know. So lie after lie after lie after lie. And Solomon says, son, I want you to understand what these lies are so you can run away from them. And he goes on and he says, here's the truth, is that that sexual sin has consequences. And I want you to remember these consequences as you look forward in your life. I read this just a moment ago, but let me read verses 22 to 27 again so we can see what happens to this young man. It says, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths for many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is on the way to Sheol. That's the grave. That's death, the underworld where the dead go, descending to the chambers of death. It's as if Solomon pulls his son aside and says, son, I want to show you a map of our town, right? Here's my house. Here's your house. Here's the city gate. Here's her house. It's on a little road that leads straight to the graveyard and hell itself, just so you know. And that's where you go if you go to her house. The consequences can be devastating. He describes it like a bird hastening to a trap. When I read that, uh, I was reminded of the the times in my life that I have been turkey hunting. I don't know if anybody's ever been turkey hunting. But, you know, if you've ever been turkey hunting, uh, you, you, the way that you lure in the turkey that you want to shoot is you, you put a decoy out in a field, and the decoy is designed to look like a girl turkey who is waiting for a liaison with a boy turkey. That's what you're trying to do. So you put this decoy out in the field, and then you hide behind the bushes, and you make a call, right? You make a turkey call that's supposed to sound like that girl turkey. And so the, the boy turkey, the turkey Tom, right, he hears the noise, and then from a distance he sees uh, this supposed girl turkey uh, that is made of rubber or plastic or whatever, and he begins to run anticipating a joyous meeting. And as he runs up, you get ready to fire and I love watching this is there's always a moment where that turkey will run up and then he kind of pulls back right at the last minute and goes, wait a second. This isn't what I expected. But just as that thought goes through his head, so does the shotgun blast. Right? He doesn't know any better. 
Do you know why he doesn't know any better? Well, I looked this up too. His brain is the size of a pea. He can't rationalize it out. He just sees what he thinks he wants and he runs after it until it's too late to get away. That's how Solomon characterizes this young man rushing into the arms of consequences that he doesn't care to think about ahead of time. And the tragedy is, his brain is not the size of a pea. God gave it to him to be able to think this out. And so he says, I want you to remember that this has consequences. Uh, I have a friend who calls this looking downstream. You look, you look downstream. As you stand in one spot and you're about to engage in a behavior, look downstream at the consequences that might come if you engage in this behavior. There are relational consequences in your marriage or your future marriage. There could be relational consequences with your children. There are, there are spiritual consequences between you and God because you, you're moving away from God instead of closer to him. You're feeling shame and guilt instead of joy in his presence. And so you're, you're drifting away from God. There can be physical consequences. It's no secret that, 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 that many people who engage in sexual immorality end up with disease, for example. Uh, this is a statistic I ran across not long ago. 50%, it's estimated 50% of those under the age of 25 who are sexually active, 50% have some sexually transmitted disease. One out of two. There are physical consequences, there are emotional consequences, even financial consequences. As Solomon warns his son in chapter 5, that you, you, you might find yourself having to pay off an angry husband or pay for a child that was unexpected or endure the splitting of a relationship that costs grief and money and time and shame. Another couple of statistics I ran across in marriages where there's secret infidelity that then gets found out, 80% end in divorce. Where, where the infidelity is confessed without being found out, it's about 40 to 45% that end in divorce. It creates damage in our relationships with one another, with God, with ourselves. So again, Solomon doesn't say all this to his son to, to make him feel shame. Instead, he's saying it to warn him. What does God want? He wants you to avoid those consequences and instead pursue what is best, God's design that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. So he says you stand in the stream and you look downstream and you remember the consequences. This is not a pathway to hope and life and joy. This is a pathway to death and ruin. And then finally, he says, here's what I want you to do. If you want to fight this well, it's not just that you reject sin's lies. It's not just that you guard your steps and remember the consequences. You have to pursue what is good, what is right, the word of God, the wisdom of God. Follow with me. I'm going to read portions of chapter 8. As we see now, the, the second woman who enters into our text, beginning in verse 1, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, 
To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I'm going to drop down to verse 35 now. For he who finds me, that is he who finds wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. I want you to notice, the woman of wisdom, she's not skulking around in the dark, is she? She's standing at the city gate, the most public possible place. She's not whispering in his ear. She's crying aloud in the street. She's not bombarding us with lies. She says, everything I say is true, straightforward, right, not crooked or perverted. So Solomon says, son, get to know that woman and run away from the other." Where do you find this wisdom? Well, Solomon told us earlier in chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, Paul says, in him, that is in Christ, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You pursue the word of God, and you come to know the Son of God. And the closer you are to Jesus the more difficult it is for these lies to take root in your heart. And so it may be that you've got to change some habits in your life. Give a friend or a roommate the password to your phone or your internet so you cannot access what you ought not access. You may need to do that. You may need to put away the internet late at night. You may need to say there's certain places I'm not going to go because they lead me to temptation. Do all of those things. Yes, but first and foremost, pursue Jesus Christ. Come to know him. First of all, to recognize that if you have a past of sexual shame, again, Jesus died for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead, and you can have forgiveness in him. The slate can be wiped clean. And if you don't yet know Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you'll come to know him. Because only in him can you find forgiveness of all your sins, sexual sins included, and the hope of eternal life. If you don't yet know him, please do come talk with me. Or you can write something down on the prayer card next to your seat. You can just say, I'd like to talk with somebody about Jesus and give us an email address, give us a phone number. We'd love to talk with you. Because that's the first step, is you know the one who made you to honor and follow God. And then if you've met him, if you believe in Jesus, do you walk with him? Do you obey him? You seek to draw close to him day after day. Let me offer some practical tips. If we want to pursue the good as we flee sexual temptation, first of all, read and memorize the scripture. Where do we find the wisdom of God? We find it in this ancient book written by those who followed Jesus for generation after generation after generation before we were here. And so we, we read it and we fill our hearts with it. What does Psalm 119 say? I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against 
you. Or Paul in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's the word of God. As we fill our mind with the truth, there's no room left for the lies. And so you read and memorize the scripture. Second, I would encourage you, cultivate honest and close community. Those who know you, who know your struggles, who care for you. If that involves joining a small group or joining an accountability group or whatever it may be, cultivate those types of friendships. And let me say something, especially on the subject of accountability. Obviously, I've only ever been in guy accountability groups, but uh, often accountability groups, uh, they're not really honest or helpful. They often function more like an autopsy than preventive health, health measures. And what I mean is often people get together and all they say is, hey, yeah, last week I struggled, I fell, I messed up, everybody goes, bummer, let's pray, and then go home. It's an autopsy. It's not helpful. Cultivate community where in advance of your falling, at the moment you feel temptation, there's somebody who knows you well enough and loves you enough that you can contact them, even if it's two in the morning, three in the morning, with a call, with a text, and you know they'll care, you know they'll answer, you know they'll pray, they'll exhort you to holiness, and they won't shame you in that moment. And in fact, will encourage your honesty and trust. I have two or three men in my life like that. It's been one of the greatest blessings this side of heaven. So I encourage you, begin to cultivate that honest community whatever you have to do to find it. Thirdly, find wholesome outlets, something to do with your time, with your body, with your hands, with your mind, rather than idly scrolling across the internet or however you get in trouble, right? Take up woodworking or write articles or go for a jog or whatever it may be. Find something wholesome and God-honoring to do with your time and work it into your life in a disciplined and structured way. Fourthly, take care of your body. Take care of the body God has given. Often we're most susceptible to temptation. When we're hungry, we're not sleeping well, we're alone, we're not eating well. Take care of the body God has given. And then last but not least, pray for purity. That the Spirit of God would transform you into a person of purity. As we've said all along, transformation of our actions, of our words, of our, of our life, it requires a transformation of the heart. And so we pray for a clean heart by the power of God and the strength and ability to honor God with our bodies and our minds so that we can reflect his character and his love and his faithfulness as he's called us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray we would trust it and believe it and obey it. Lord, I know there are those in this room that are struggling with shame and with guilt, and I pray that the grace of God would just surround them this morning. The reminder that there's forgiveness and hope in Jesus. I know there are those that are resisting your word, and I pray that you would speak directly to those hearts, Father. Draw people close to you. Lord, I pray convict us of our sin. Lead us to confession and repentance and to the hope of transformation by your spirit. Make us pure and holy. For your sake, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.